there are still questions and ethical issues surrounding the powerful gene editing technique known as CRISPR. But there's no doubt that it is already changing lives. We're not talking here about designer babies, although we will in this episode, but editing human DNA to cure diseases and save lives. I no longer had to experience severe pain and stop my life just to be in the hospital for long periods of time. My children no longer have the fear of losing their mom to sickle cell disease. But the gene editing tool is only a decade old, and like all new technology, the implications are still somewhat of a black box. By using it to modify animal and plant cells, scientists are accelerating evolution and introducing novel genetic combinations that could transform our biological landscape in unforeseen ways. But imagine ridding the world of malaria-spreading mosquitoes. So how do we balance the uncertainties of CRISPR technology with its promise? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. From practical hurdles to ethical challenges, we explore how a powerful gene editing tool is already rewriting DNA. This episode is CRISPR Mosquitoes. We've had unusually heavy rains in the past few weeks, which has been great for these plants, but it does prompt me to search around the yard for standing pools of water (laughs) so we can avoid breeding a nuisance. Male and female mosquitoes uh, will mate with each other and the females will lay eggs. Like here in this flower pot, I'll just pour this out. I'll just pour it on the plant here. And typically females will lay eggs in bodies of water and females also have to feed on blood to help them to produce the proteins that they need to then produce eggs. And that's why females will bite humans and other animals. Males don't bite, they don't need to do that. Here's another, not much water in that, but it doesn't take much. It just takes a quarter of an inch to create a mosquito incubator. And then the next thing you know in the middle of the night is that awful whine and you're slapping your neck. Perhaps there's nothing that unites humanity so much as shared dislike of mosquitoes, and it's understandable that we'd do just about anything to get rid of them. And we have. With the war-discovered DDT in special sprayers, sections of the city are blanketed with the insecticide in the fight to stop the spread of the dread poliomyelitis. Every suspected spot is sprayed. That did not work out. Aside from the toxic effects of DDT, Mosquitoes do not carry polio, but they are vectors for many diseases, including malaria, West Nile virus, dengue, and Zika. And so scientists have long searched for a safer way to rid ourselves of this pest. My name is Nathan Rose. I work for Oxitec, which is a biotech company based in the UK. Uh, My title is the head of malaria programs at Oxitec, and I'm a molecular biologist by training. Dr. Rose's team is controlling mosquito populations early in their lives in those breeding pools. By modifying male genomes with what's called gene-limiting technology, they ensure that the baby females never reach adulthood. So what Oxitec does is we release male mosquitoes, which don't bite. Uh, They will mate with the wild female mosquitoes. And then when those female mosquitoes lay eggs and produce offspring, they only are able to produce male offspring. They're not able to produce any female offspring. 
And so that's a way of getting rid of the females, which are the ones that can actually bite and transmit diseases. Oxitec is running the first open-air release of modified mosquitoes in the United States. But the company is not using the gene-editing technique CRISPR. Scientists using CRISPR on mosquitoes are restricting their work to the lab for now. But both CRISPR and gene-limiting technology alter DNA. Identifying how the approaches differ, though, will help us think about the practical and ethical implications of using CRISPR on all genomes, including human. That is, is CRISPR just another way of editing DNA, or is it fundamentally different? Some people, Greenpeace and others, will view any kind of genetic modification involving the outside world, involving non-humans, as a step down a slippery slope. Some of those slippery slopes are more slippery and lead to more dangerous places than others. I'm Hank Greeley. I'm a law professor at Stanford University, where I directed Center for Law and the Biosciences. He reminds us that we have been modifying genes for centuries. Everything we eat, everything we grow, our dogs and cats, we have modified their genomes with those brilliant geneticists named our ancestors. Our farmer and herder ancestors changed everything. They just did it in a different way. So let's look more closely at how Nathan Rose and his team are controlling the most irritating of all insects. And for that, we go to the humid, swampy southeastern coast. So Florida is a part of the United States which has an invasive mosquito species called Aedes aegypti. And this is the mosquito which can transmit diseases like dengue, Zika virus, yellow fever. Broward and Miami-Dade counties both have a locally acquired case of dengue fever. Symptoms of and dengue a couple of years ago, actually in the Florida Keys, where we are now doing releases, uh, there was an outbreak of dengue fever. About 60 to 70 people got dengue in Florida. Uh, that was before we started releases of our mosquitoes. And this invasive species, unfortunately, is not as effectively controlled by insecticides and, and other control tools as we'd like. And so we need new tools to help the local mosquito control authorities to be able to stop this disease-spreading mosquito. He says that the company's release of around 5 million mosquitoes is a proof of concept that the technology works in the United States. And now the EPA has approved the company releasing billions of mosquitoes in the coming years. We've already demonstrated it in Brazil for several years. Uh, so in Brazil, when we released our self-limiting male mosquitoes, we were able to reduce mosquito populations by 95% in the areas where we released. And so it works really effectively. And in Florida, we've just been basically carrying out the same kind of demonstration to show that we can have an impact on the mosquito populations there. And did you have a similar result in Florida? What were the results? What we were doing in Florida was looking at a few different things. Initially, we were just looking at how far these mosquitoes were flying, how they were behaving, can they actually mate with the local female mosquitoes. And so we showed that that all happens as expected. And then in the last season, we were able to show reductions in the mosquito populations uh, in the areas where our mosquitoes were released. So let's look more closely at how the technology of self-limiting genes works. What we did is in these mosquitoes, we used a, a kind of genetic editing method, which allowed us to insert two genes into the mosquitoes' chromosomes. And one of the genes that we inserted was a fluorescent gene, which basically allows us to track which mosquitoes are modified. Because when we put them under a microscope, they will glow a certain color, and that way we can tell which mosquitoes have been released by us and which ones are the wild ones. 
Okay, but um, you have to put them under a microscope. You don't see them zipping no. around, glowing like fireflies. No, they don't do that. Uh, when you stick them under a microscope with a certain color of light, then you will see them glow. Um, the second gene which we put into these mosquitoes is what we call the self-limiting gene. So the gene produces a protein, which then inhibits the general development of the female mosquitoes. And mosquitoes start their development in water, so they will grow as larvae in water, then they become pupae, and then they become adults. And what the self-limiting gene does is it basically stops the females from developing past the larval stage of development. I wonder if you could say more about how you insert that gene into a mosquito genome. So what we do is we take the eggs of these mosquitoes and we put them on a microscope slide. And then what we can do is we can actually insert a very, very fine needle into those eggs and inject DNA into those eggs. And what happens is that DNA that we inject carries these two genes, which I talked about, and that DNA will then insert itself into the chromosomes of the mosquito eggs. And then once it's inserted into there, we let those eggs hatch, and then we can basically breed from those, uh, those hatched eggs, which contain the two genes. Um, and once we've got the, the mosquitoes that carry these genes, we can then establish a breeding colony of them. And you'll remember I said that the genes cause all female mosquitoes carrying them to die. We can actually turn off that killing mechanism in the lab by feeding them an antidote. And that allows us to breed male and female mosquitoes in the lab that carry these two genes. But when they're in the wild, they don't have access to that antidote, and that means that the females will die. Mm -hmm. This was a, a small-scale release of these mosquitoes, and it was in a limited area. Nathan, what would a large-scale release of these self-limiting mosquitoes look like? So in Brazil, we actually now sell these mosquitoes commercially. And the way we do that is we ship to people um, a box which comes with some of these mosquito eggs inside and some food for the developing mosquito larvae. And so when a person receives this box, they literally just add water. They put this box outside in their yard. And after about 10 days, these male self-limiting mosquitoes will start to fly out of this box. And then they will fly out into their garden, into their yard, into the surrounding neighborhood and mate with the wild females. And then that will stop the, the offspring. So a large scale release would look like basically placing these release boxes throughout a neighborhood or throughout a city that has a problem with this particular disease spreading mosquito. And what would you say are the biggest benefits of this technology? They Obviously, they could s stop or slow down the spread of certain diseases like dengue and malaria. But could you really put an end, say, to malaria transmission? So we target just a few selected species of mosquitoes. Um, dengue and Zika virus and yellow fever are all spread by one single invasive species of mosquito, um, which is now found throughout South America. It's in the southern United States, and it really shouldn't be there. It doesn't come from this part of the world. And so what we're doing is we're basically targeting just the single species without spraying chemicals which potentially could interact and, and kill other beneficial species like bees, like butterflies, and so on. So we really see this as a very targeted, environmentally friendly way to target just this invasive species. And we're starting to apply the same technology to some of the other species of mosquito which spread malaria. So malaria is spread by a different kind of mosquito called the Anopheles mosquito genus. And in different parts of the world, you get different species of the Anopheles mosquitoes. 
And we're starting to work on a couple of those, one that's invaded East Africa recently and another one that's found in Central America. Experts see great promise in the work that Oxitec is doing. In fact, Hank Greeley thinks that the prospect of editing human genomes is drawing attention away from the areas where we will see major practical applications of this technology. I actually think that gene editing is going to be most important with non-humans. We're going to take more risks because we don't care as much about mosquito babies as we care about human babies. We will take more risks. We will do it for some good things like improving agriculture. It's going to be a lot easier to change the genes of crops than to move, say, the wheat belt 300 miles north with climate change. A really interesting use is to try to cut down on diseases. Malaria kills 400,000 people a year. They're almost all little children in Africa, so we don't hear that much about them. That's 400,000 people. They all catch malaria from mosquitoes. That's all very promising, but what if something goes wrong? It's not like you can recall millions of buzzing mosquitoes if an experiment goes off the rails. For example, could the modified genes escape into the environment? What about the fear that some people have that animals that feed on mosquitoes could take up these genes? Or could there be other unintended consequences? These mosquitoes are invasive species, so there is no particular animal in the environment which relies on these species for their diet. So if we reduce the population of these mosquitoes, we're not going to have an impact on the food chain. That's a really important aspect of what we do. Um, in terms of the genes being picked up by other species, uh, that's not likely to happen. So you don't pick up the DNA from a chicken or a cow if you eat chicken or if you eat beef. Uh, it gets digested in your stomach. And the same is true for any animal that eats one of these mosquitoes. Um, these mosquitoes also only breed with mosquitoes of the same species. So that means they're not able to pass on these genes to any other species because they can't breed with them effectively. You've had success in Brazil, you've had trials in, in Florida with releasing these mosquitoes and they've been successful. For you as a scientist, what is motivating you about this project and is exciting to you about it? So one of the biggest challenges globally right now is the loss of insect biodiversity because of the overuse of chemical insecticides. So we found a way that we can target these species that cause huge public health problems around the globe without needing to do that. So we can help to address a major public health problem in South America, in Africa, in other parts of the world in a way that's going to have a minimum environmental impact. And we're really excited about that. Do you think that the public understands your goals? And I ask because I know in, in some cases where Oxitec has conducted uh, trials or proposed the release of these modified mosquitoes, the local residents um, have expressed opposition. And I wonder how you have addressed their concerns? Have you talked to, to local communities directly? Do they understand what's happening? We do. We spend a lot of time talking to residents and local communities. Um, in Brazil, where we've released these mosquitoes for over 10 years, we have more than 95% public support in the cities where we release these mosquitoes. So people see the problem with disease and they see this as a way to protect them. Um, and so they're very, very supportive. And we've actually seen the same in Florida. So in Florida, we spent a lot of time talking to local communities. We went door to door in the neighborhoods where we released mosquitoes. And we actually invited people to take part in these releases with us. 
by hosting some of these boxes that release mosquitoes, by hosting the traps that we use to monitor the impact in the environment. And we were oversubscribed in all of those things. We had more people signing up than we knew what to do with. So we've actually seen really positive public support throughout the project in Florida. So imagine one day, instead of lathering your arms with insect repellent and spraying your backyard, you'll put one of those boxes out back and let the self-limiting gene technology go to work. Now, as we've said, self-limiting gene technology is not CRISPR. Yet, both introduce a gene into mosquitoes that is designed to be inherited. So what is the difference? For one, and it's an important difference, CRISPR passes genes down with a method called a gene drive. Gene drive is where you try to basically overcome the natural inheritance patterns in biology. So naturally, you would inherit a gene from your father and your mother, um, and so you would have two different copies of a particular gene. And then when your children inherit that, they would inherit one copy of those genes going forward. Gene drive basically forces every single offspring to have two identical copies of a gene. And what that enables you to do is to basically push a gene throughout the entire wild population of a particular species. So instead of a 50% chance of inheriting a gene, it's, it's certain, it's 100%. It's 100% chance of inheriting that gene. And you can use CRISPR to accomplish that. So one of the concerns around that kind of gene drive approach is, is there a way to stop it if we needed to for any reason? And so a lot of work is going into figuring out how could we achieve gene drive, but also be able to, to put an end to it if we needed to. Whereas with your technology, the gene limiting technology, you could stop at any time. It'll stop at any time, and because it's causing all of the females that inherited to die, you'll see that those genes will disappear from the environment naturally very quickly. Nathan Rose, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's been great to talk to you as well. Thank you. Okay, so if I've got this right, the primary difference between the technologies is how many generations forward each go. With CRISPR, there's no end, but with gene-limiting technology, well, it's limited. Well, the CRISPR tool has been called revolutionary. It's so easy to use, it's been compared with the, you know, find and replace function in your word processor. So, what happens when we start applying it to humans? An ethicist weighs in next. This episode of Big Picture Science is CRISPR Mosquitoes. What's an appropriate gift for the 10-year anniversary of a landmark scientific paper? 2022 marked a decade since we learned about a gene-editing tool different from anything that came before. Although, to be fair, credit for CRISPR really goes back to something that came long before. It was invented by an anonymous bacterium three billion years ago or so. It's a bacterial defense mechanism. It's a way bacteria used to cut up viruses. Viruses invade us and cause us trouble. Now so invade bacteria, but bacteria fought back with CRISPR. Here's how it works. CRISPR employs RNA, called guide RNA, in the task of search and replace. RNA is the cousin of DNA, and RNA can identify and bind to pieces of DNA. A protein now cuts through both strands of DNA at that location. So the RNA grabs and holds on to the DNA, 
Then the CRISPR-associated protein, and there are a bunch of them. The first and most famous is called Cas9. It cuts through the DNA. And that's what viruses wanted to do. By cutting through the DNA, they inactivated the viruses. So that's what bacteria did to viruses. When the targeted gene is cut, it turns it off. Now you have the option to add new DNA to that location. What are the possibilities this brings for editing human genomes? Well, theoretically, you could turn off the DNA in germ cells that make eyes blue and insert one that ensures your child has brown eyes. CRISPR has been called the new frontier of gene editing because it is faster and more precise. And the implications of this causes consternation. We're devoting an episode to it, after all. But bioethicist Hank Greeley wants us to maintain perspective. It's arguably a more controllable method. But it's not new. It is different. It does deserve our attention and concern, but it doesn't require hysterical responses. Maybe not, but it does require thought about its use practically and ethically. So I think the questions we need to ask around CRISPR from an ethical perspective, the first two really important ethical questions that people never seem to recognize as ethical questions are, is it safe and does it work? Safety and efficacy are fundamentally ethics questions. It's unethical to sell people things that are unsafe or ineffective. Once you get past that, it's really a matter of how much control do parents or societies want there to be over what offspring should be like. Some people will say we should have none. Um, the Vatican says any kind of, in, of, of interference with natural reproduction is sinful. Other people will say, go for it. The transhumanists say, yeah, I want to grow wings. There are going to be lots of different ethical takes coming from lots of different ethical perspectives. But ultimately, it turns into a question of just how much control do we think people should be able to have over their offspring? I'm a parent. Every parent has a duty to try to shape their offspring. Is genetically shaping importantly different? Some people say yes. Some people say no. And there is not going to be a single ethics answer to that. It depends on what ethical starting places you take. Dr. Greeley has given these questions a lot of thought. His latest book is CRISPR People, The Science and Ethics of Editing Humans. Hank, to what extent is this a significant breakthrough? I mean, I assume that people have been working for a while on the, uh, the problem of trying to edit a genome and is CRISPR really, you know, head and shoulders above the earlier attempts? Is this a major breakthrough? Or I mean, I, I realize that's a qualitative assessment, but... It's not head and shoulders above. It's redwood trees above. It is enormously better than what came before. People had been able to do gene editing using a couple of things invented in the, in the aughts, in the 2000s. They would take three or four months of lab work of several postdocs and several grad students and they might work a third of the time. I remember talking to a friend at the medical school shortly after the CRISPR stuff came out, and I said, hey, Matt, you got, is your lab using this CRISPR stuff? He said, yeah. I said, how's that working out? He said, well, you know, new tools. I figured it would take us a couple of months to get it down. It took us one afternoon. There are high school students using CRISPR. It is fast, it is easy, and it is cheap. I have to say the idea of high school students using CRISPR does give me some pause. There are lots of different cells, of course, in the human body, but there's a real distinction between using CRISPR for uh, editing or for altering somatic cells and germ cells. Uh, maybe you can explain the difference here. 
Sure. Um, this germ cell has nothing to do with you getting the flu or getting COVID or getting a cold, different kind of germ. This is germ from the Greek word for seed. And we have about 35 trillion human cells in our body. Probably around 34.99 trillion of them are what we call somatic cells. They're your brain cells and your skin cells and your gut cells and your fat cells, your kidney cells, your liver cells, etc. The only ones that are germ cells are your eggs and your sperm and the cells that lead to the production of eggs and sperm. That's it. What makes them different? If I changed cells on the tip of your nose and gave you a different looking nose, that change dies. If I change the DNA in them, that change dies with you. If I change cells in your sperm and the sperm that I happen to change finds an egg and everything goes right and there's a baby born, that baby would get that changed DNA. So the difference between somatic cells in your body is they die with you versus germ cells, they can be passed on to future generations. Your children, maybe your children's children, children's children's children, etc. So the dramatic take on this is that, you know, reprogramming a somatic cell just affects that one individual, whereas editing a germ cell could, in principle, change a species. Yes, although, you know, to be fair, if we edit some somatic cells to keep you from dying young, um, that also has effects on your children. It doesn't change their DNA, but it, it majorly changes their life. And fixing diseases changes societies in big ways. So, yes, it's a difference. It's not quite as stark a difference as people sometimes like to make it out. But in terms of DNA, yes, only changing the germ cells changes the DNA of the next generations. All right, CRISPR has been around a little bit of time now. It's not the, you know, the work of last week or anything. What are the possibilities with this technique for, you know, for human good? What, what could it do that we can't do any other way? Sure. It's already been used now for over a decade, just a little over a decade, for basic research. Let's say you're interested in what a particular gene does. Well, use CRISPR to knock it out in a cell line and cells in a dish and that'll tell you what happens to cells if they don't have that gene. Lots of basic research going on with lots of different kinds of cells and lots of different uh, organisms. The most important and exciting stuff is using it to treat human disease. No, as far as I know, no CRISPR-related drugs or therapies have been FDA-approved yet, but there are some that are really close. Uh, a lot of them are for cancer, oddly enough, to try to change the DNA of your T cells in your immune system so they'll attack the cancer. But there are also trials in late stages for things like sickle cell anemia and for beta thalassemia, for hemophilia. Now, those are all blood diseases, and there's a good reason for that. With blood diseases, you can take blood-forming cells out of the body and you can change them outside the body, see if you made the right changes and put them back. Potentially, there are tens of millions or hundred, maybe even 100 million people around the world who have serious genetic diseases for which CRISPR could provide really curative gene therapies. Could you extend that treatment to also modify, for example, uh, the germ cells so that you know, none of the offspring of the people suffering these diseases would even need CRISPR to forestall contracting those diseases? 
So that's been done a lot in mice and in rats and some in non-human primates. And we think it's been done at least three times in actual human babies. Back in November of 2018 at the Second International Human Genome Editing Summit in Hong Kong, it turned out that a Chinese scientist named He Zhangkui had crispered human embryos and that two of them had been born as non-identical twin girls shortly before that conference. This resulted in a great uproar. It resulted in changes in regulations and legislation. It resulted in He being sentenced to three years in prison in China because he did not follow. There were a lot of rules that he didn't follow. Um, as far as we know, it hasn't resulted in any more kids. And one of the really frustrating things about it is so there were the two kids announced in November of 2018. There was a third child born sometime the next summer. We have no knowledge about how healthy those kids are. The Chinese claiming that they're protecting the privacy of the babies are not releasing any information about their health, which is a shame. Well, you know, a lot of your book talks about the fact that this was really an unethical experiment. And it was done, apparently, somewhat secretively. You know, it was only announced after the fact. To somebody listening to this interview, they might think, well, gosh, CRISPR sounds like it has such enormous potential benefits that why the heck not try and improve the survivability of these twin girls, right? I mean, what's the danger here? So the danger is this had never been done in humans before. And we had no particular way of knowing whether it was going to work well or not. The danger is you get dead babies or disabled babies or babies who are very vulnerable to unforeseen diseases later in life. But He was in too big a hurry to be careful. And as a result, the biggest ethical problem with this research was it put these babies at high risks, risks they had never consented to, of course, for minimal potential benefits to them. Part of that has to do with the fact that these babies didn't have any particular genetic disease. What Hu was trying to do was increase, improve their resistance to HIV should at some point in the next 70 years after they were born, they be exposed to HIV. Um, even if it works, it's not an enormous benefit, but the risks of doing anything that for the first time in humans are enormous. Uh, it flunked many things, but the first and the biggest was the risks greatly outweighed the potential benefits. I hardly need point out, although I'll point it out anyhow, that this is really the first time in the 300,000-year history of Homo sapiens that we have a capability to change the human race. Um, you know, is there any reason not to say, look, you know, we're not going to wait for evolution. I mean, we're no smarter than the, the inhabitants of the Roman Empire, right? 2,000 years have gone by, and we're still basically the same, the same people. Maybe we really do want super babies. So the super baby story is, I think, an interesting and complicated one. Um, the biggest problem is right now we don't have any idea how to make super babies, I'm not even sure that in 30 or 40 years we will, because brains are enormously complicated. You know, change people's knees, change people's kidneys, yeah, maybe, but change people's brains in, in predictable and good ways. Brains are a third genetics, a third environment, and a third chance. 
and all those thirds are really, really complicated. But if we could, should we? If it's safe and effective, I don't have a big objection to it, although I think that's a question that different societies, cultures, governments, and prospective parents will have to answer for themselves. I think ultimately governments will have to decide if we can do this safely. If we can't do it safely, we shouldn't do it. But if we can't, and safely for the babies, if we can do this safely, do we want to and for what kinds of things? Those are ultimately going to be political questions as well as at the level of the individual parents, personal questions. And I think different countries will do, should we get to that point, different countries will make different decisions about that. And I'm okay with that. I don't think there's, um, I, I think people who say we shouldn't enhance ourselves are not paying attention to our history. You and I are talking, but we're not actually in the same room. We're not in the same city. We're talking thanks to our devices. In a couple of weeks, I'm flying to Seattle, but my wings are not going to get tired. We have been enhancing ourselves constantly. I would actually say, rather than homo sapiens, homo enhancens, or whatever the Latin root would be, should be our name. So is this different? Well, it's different because it's biological. The biological feels different, but I don't think it really should be. Hank Greeley is a law professor at Stanford University, where he directs the Center for Law and the Biosciences. He is the author of CRISPR People, The Science and Ethics of Editing Humans. While there have been leaps forward using CRISPR on people, a prominent example is a woman who is now free of a painful genetic disease. That story is next on this episode of Big Picture Science, CRISPR Mosquitoes. a development that may be surprising. While scientists have not released CRISPR mosquitoes from the lab, they have used CRISPR to change human DNA in the real world. Here are two examples. One is the great potential of CRISPR to improve lives. The other, as Hank Greeley explained, is that of Chinese scientist Ho Jun Kui, whom the science community sanctioned after his shocking announcement at the second international summit on gene editing in Hong Kong in 2018. He had used CRISPR to edit twin human embryos. We want to give uh, Dr. He a chance to explain what he's done in terms of the science in particular, but also other aspects of what he's done. We didn't know the story that was going to break over the last couple of days uh, when... The story broke thanks to this reporter who was writing about CRISPR research. Uh, I'm Antonio Regalado. I am the senior editor for biomedicine at MIT Technology Review. What happened is I had gone to China uh, the month before the conference, or the summit, the second international human genome editing summit, to interview all the people involved in editing human embryos, right? Some people had started to just edit embryos experimentally. And of course, you know, I wanted to see how far they had taken it. Uh, so I met Ho Jiankui when I was there, 
he did not tell me he, he had made babies, of course. But then later on, I came back to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I live. And a couple of days before the summit started, I discovered his documents online. So Technology Review actually published a story called Chinese Scientists Are Creating CRISPR Babies, which broke the story that he had already started these experiments. And about two hours later, he put his videos online, YouTube videos, describing the experiment. Two beautiful little Chinese girls named Lulu and Lala came So we pushed it out into the light. And of course, the consequences were <laughs> uh, intense. The experiment was not accepted by the scientific community, and Hu Jiankui actually ended up spending three years in jail. But by the time scientists met for the third international summit on gene editing in London in 2023, researchers had moved on from Ho's controversial experiment. They were focused on another CRISPR breakthrough, one celebrated as a milestone. Good evening. I'm Victoria Gray, and I'm a 37-year-old mother of four and a sickle cell survivor. Journalist Antonio Regalado describes Victoria Gray's case, which he also wrote about for MIT Technology Review and its implications for the future of disease treatment. Victoria Gray is an African-American woman from Mississippi who is among the first to receive a gene therapy using CRISPR gene editing to treat sickle cell disease, which she has. As early as I can remember, severe pain and trips to the hospital was just as normal to me as sunshine and a school day. And, you know, she was kind of the star of the summit because she described her experience getting this treatment. Well, first of all, she described her experience living with sickle cell. And it was terrible to hear. Terrible. I would start having pain in one arm, then the next. And in a matter of minutes, my entire body would be taken over with severe pain. That would mean long trips to the hospital for me, receiving IV fluids, high-dose pain medicines, and possible blood transfusions. I would return home and try to be a normal kid. I've seen her presentation. If anyone wants to see her presentation, it is online, the presentation that she gave to the International Summit. And as you say, she tells the story of how she was born with sickle cell disease. How was it interfering with her ability to be a normal kid? Well, actually, the part of the story that really uh, was the strongest medicine was her trying to live with this pain as an adult. I mean, your heart goes out to a kid, but as an adult and having her own kids. I also became a mom, but my health began to decline at a faster rate. I can recall getting sick in the, on my fall break in October 2010 and not leaving the hospital until January of 2011. Sickle cells caused by errors in the hemoglobin molecule, which result in sickling of your red blood cells. You don't get enough oxygen, and this causes episodes of like incredible pain. And she's got kids, uh, she's trying to hold out a job, and she's constantly going to the ER to be treated, often with you know strong pain medications. And finally, she got fed up. Uh, she started a quest, as many patients do, to, to see what science could do for her. I think it started a discussion about getting a bone marrow transplant from another person. Bone marrow transplant can be curative for sickle cell. But then she ended up enrolling in a clinical trial that was going to test a CRISPR treatment. It's run by Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Uh, here in Boston, and uh, she was one of the first patients enrolled. I'm not sure if she was the first to get the treatment, um, but she's certainly the, the most well-known recipient of it. In June of 2019, my new super cells was ready. That's what I like to call them. <laughs> <laughs> 
Full of hope and faith, I traveled back to Nashville with my dad by my side. And finally, on July 2nd, 2019, I received my new supercells. Within minutes and the manual push of three vials of my edited cells, my life changed tremendously. I shed tears of joy. After about three months, I was able to return home to be with my family. It took about seven to eight months for me to physically feel and mentally accept that I was better. It's hard to say if she's been cured. I don't think she used the big C word, and I would be reluctant to use it either, but it certainly sounds like her life has changed. And in fact, you know, when she gave this presentation to the summit, you know, there was not a dry eye in the room. What made her story particularly moving? And maybe another way to put it is, why do you think that her story is not only moving, but also important? Well, you know, I think there's been a lot of focus on the bad part of CRISPR, uh, the CRISPR babies in China, other things that people are scared of, gene drives, you know, there's this fear about the misuse of technology or people using it in, in, in ways that society doesn't want. But, you know, when you're treating someone for sickle cell disease, that's something that everybody can applaud. And everybody did. You know, that is the ambition of all those scientists and all those researchers and doctors in the room. I mean, why do they go to work in the morning? They're going there because they want to help patients. It's also exciting and it's also interesting and important because Victoria Gray is an African-American woman from Mississippi. Like she's far, geographically far, uh, probably wealth far from the people that are developing these treatments, right? I mean, they're at Stanford and they're at Vertex. So it's quite interesting that the first treatment that's probably gonna reach the market involving CRISPR is something that in the United States would really be primarily for African-Americans. So at this summit, and just in general, there's a big discussion about, you know, well, if these treatments are so expensive, how are we possibly gonna get, get them to the people who need them? And in the case of sickle cell, uh, those are people in the United States, but also uh, sickle cell is most common in, you know, along the equator uh, in Africa. Those are poor countries. Vertex, the company, has no intention of taking their treatment there. Not in its, cur not in its current form. Well, stepping back from the treatment of sickle cell disease specifically and looking more generally, um, what does the Victoria Gray case mean for how routine CRISPR might be as an avenue toward curing a host of diseases? It's very clear to me, very clear that scientists, including the scientists at Vertex, are all looking for the next generation treatment. What Victoria Gray got is generation one. She is 1.0. Okay, they are working very hard to figure out how to deliver these CRISPR molecules into the body, right? You would basically get hooked up to an IV for an hour and the molecules would drip into your bloodstream and they would home in on the bone marrow cells and edit them where they lie, right? And I can't tell you how important this is because if gene editing technology is ever to reach people you know, for instance, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there's like a high rate of sickle cell, it can't be this bone marrow transplant. You know, you need hospitals and, you know, you need all this infrastructure to do that. But if it's just a drip out of a bag, that could turn CRISPR into like a huge public health measure, just like vaccines have been. You know, you can imagine going around and getting rid of these horrible inherited diseases for cheap, for pretty cheap. It shouldn't cost $3 million, you know, 
Why does it cost $3 million? I can't, I can't say, but the actual physical ingredients would only be like $1,000. But some of these other stories that are emerging are, are exciting. Um, there's some exciting stories with CRISPR, one of which has to do with, in my opinion, with human enhancement, if you want to talk about that. Well, I, I like to stick to the... <laughs> well, yes, okay, okay. I will, I will take that bait. In what way could CRISPR be used for human enhancement? You mean things like, perhaps you could get me to speak French fluently or be <laughs> no. stro- have no. stronger arm strength or just in general have better memory, that sort of thing? It's even better than that. Well, I'll tell you what, the, the controversy about the editing... I don't know what's better than better memory, but okay, go on. <laughs> well, it's long life. The controversy with editing the embryos was, was you know, enhancement. Are we going to create enhanced human beings, you know, designer human beings? The, these, these babies in China were edited such that they would be resistant to HIV, right? They would not be able to get HIV because the edit was to remove the receptor for HIV from their bodies. It was kind of an enhancement. So although people, you know, scientists strongly rejected this... <laughs> this creation of the designer babies. On the other hand, uh, there is a company here in Boston um, called Verve, which has a treatment, a CRISPR treatment, that would edit cells in the liver. And the purpose is to lower someone's bad cholesterol levels, right? All you have to do is break one gene, you knock out this gene, it's called PCSK9, and your bad cholesterol levels, LDL cholesterol, are going to plummet. Now, who are they testing this drug in? Well, they're testing it in people who have in, an inherited condition of ultra-high cholesterol, hypercholesterolemia, right? Their blood looks like, you know, it looks like butter. And these people end up having, you know, literally a heart attack at 25 or 30. You know, it is a serious condition. But all of us have this bad cholesterol, right? I don't know what your level is. I think mine is like 140 or something. You know, all of us have a higher different level. Higher than it used to it, be. Higher than it used to be. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I went into the doctor and I was shocked. Like, I, you know, I never thought I had a cholesterol problem. And then, you know, suddenly my level was a little bit higher. And so it turns out this is one of the best studied molecules in its relationship to heart disease. It's one of the, the things is the best studied in all of cardiology. And so basically the cardiologists are like, this LDL, is a, it's a toxin that kills you little by little. You know, LDL is the biggest, it's like the biggest killer in the world, this molecule, slowly poisoning you and faster if you have high levels. So you can imagine this CRISPR treatment that knocks out this gene. Well, why give it only to the people who have like the most severe cases? Why not everybody when they're 20 years old or 25 undergo this drip that I'm talking about, a drip of some CRISPR into your system and lower your cholesterol permanently? This would be in life extension technology. And, and the scientists who were involved, you know, I approached them and I said, is this an enhancement therapy? And I expected them to kind of dodge the question. And they said, no, uh, it is or it should be and it can be. Because the enhancement therapies or anything that give you a leg up allow you to live longer and live stronger and healthier lives. Exactly. Now we can think of other areas of enhancement like brain, uh, you know, brain, brain genes. Certainly in these huge studies that, that are going on, population genetics, people have identified genes that basically protect you against Alzheimer's as well. So that would be an interesting one to have. I would take that. What's interesting about this is we started talking about Victoria Gray and talking about sickle cell disease and inherited diseases. And now we're talking about using, in this conversation, CRISPR to help lower 
cholesterol and perhaps fight against Alzheimer's disease, does that flow as naturally as it seems to? Is Victoria Gray the face of the whole future in some ways, whether she wants to be or not, the face of the whole future of the potential of CRISPR to make us live longer and have healthier lives? It, it does flow. I mean, <laughs> Jennifer Doudna, one of the uh, inventors of the CRISPR technology, I mean, she's said many times, she's tried to get the point across is that this is profound. Like this is, you know, this is the technology to change the molecular basis of who we are. Um, and that's why it generates, you know, controversy and upset when it comes to the babies. It's much easier to understand and accept when it's someone like Victoria Gray who's so sick but, you know, the genome is the genome, and it can be, it can be made better. Antonio Regalado, thank you for this wonderful overview. Terrific. Thank you, guys. Antonio Regalado is the senior editor for biomedicine at MIT Technology Review. Well, that brings us to the big picture question, Seth. And uh, the question that we asked at the top of the show was, is CRISPR a fundamentally different kind of gene editing technology. Well, I think in in some ways it is because, well, it has high precision and ultimately it could be, I suspect, much more affordable, which would, you know, suddenly convert it from boutique medicine or a boutique treatment into something that could be perhaps even routinely done. It is a revolution. It's, it's like the germ theory, right? I, I think medical history will be divided into before CRISPR and after CRISPR. Well, this show would not be possible without the editing talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Ryan Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from the Breakthrough Prize Foundation, Lauren Trottier, Rena Shulsky-David, and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates the social mechanisms that have led to an intelligent species. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science, looking at how gene editing technologies are rewriting DNA, is called CRISPR Mosquitoes.